0: Welcome to the Shilling Toastmasters podcast.
1: We come to you weekly from Shilling Speakers Toastmasters Club.
2: An online club with global membership in District 91 in the UK.
1: Welcome to the Shilling Toastmasters podcast. Today we have a full compliment. We have Philippa Gray. Hello. We have Paula Mahoney. Hello. And we have me, Pat Kaslin. As usual, we'll start with our big ideas. Paul, what's your big idea for this week?
0: Oh, my big idea, my big experience got me out of a load of trouble this week, Pat. I bought a book a little while ago and it's called Robert's Rules. It's uh, very, very cheap, very, very cheap, about five or six or seven quid at the most. And I have it loaded on my smartphone and I've been reading it. And, you know, I thought it wouldn't be much practical use to me. Then the big experience I had is that I had to chair a meeting, which was, well, I had to chair a process because I'm president of a club and something happened in the club and it needed to be dealt with properly. And all sorts of people needed to be involved. And I went to Robert's Rules. You see, Robert's Rules of parliamentary procedure, I thought was the most boring Topic that I could ever have to learn about when I heard about it first in Toastmaster, I thought, well, that's the last thing I'm doing. I'm not going to read a, uh, a book about how to run meetings, telling me what motions are and what amendments to motions are and what points of order are and all those kind of things. I thought, no. But my goodness, how wrong I was. That book is gold dust for anyone who has to chair a meeting at which there are tricky things going on and at which there need to be motions voted on. Or if there aren't motions voted on, nobody will know what's going to happen. So my big uh, my big idea this week is, for goodness sake, go out and get yourself Robert's uh, Rules. The, uh, the short version, as I say, there's a long version. I know a president of a Toastmasters club, he won't mind me saying this, um, up in uh, Aberdeen, and he bought the full version. So he has the full version. I have the small version, and we're definitely going to compare notes because both of us are in a position whereby, as presidents, we have to chair committees. And indeed, as a division director, I have to chair committees. And I don't know if either of you have chaired a committee recently, but if you know the correct procedure for doing things, you have a great advantage of doing things right.
1: Well, Paul, having spoken about this in the past, I am fully in agreement with you. Philippa, what's your big idea this week?
2: Uh, First, I do remember you talking about it, Pat, and I'm sure other people have talked about it as well. And yes, you've convinced me, Paul, I probably need my own copy. But just off the top of my head, be careful. I've seen people really upset uh, the rest of the people in the meeting just by out of the blue, quoting the right way to do things. If your committee is not a happy bunch of people, not a happy bunch of friendly people, you need to be careful. I'll just say that. That wasn't a Toastmasters. Experience. Just
0: one I'm little thing. Going. Just one little thing. If the committee is made up of people who have got lots of dissent and lots of difficulty collaborating, in my opinion, nothing helps collaboration go better than knowledge of correct procedure basics like people will not be interrupted while they are speaking they have the right to speak without interruption that is in robert's rules now if you have a committee that are arguing in difficulty with each other that's the kind of rule you need isn't it
2: yes but it doesn't work when somebody thinks the chair is using the rules to uh, do the matter their uh... Chance to do something anyway. I say,
0: just just one more thing on this. Robert's rule says that the powers of the chair are limited. The chair does not have all power. A member in a group can propose a motion to change the decision that a chair has made, and that motion must be voted on. So it's all very amicable. When you use Robert Rules, very amicable, no difficulty at all.
2: I'm sure both you and Pat are uh, absolutely uh, competent at chairing and do a brilliant job. But I say if you find you can't, maybe people who find they can't make Robert's Rules work need to think about whether they're actually good at chairing or whether they're the right person for the chair. And yes, The person I'm thinking of probably assumed that as chair he had unlimited authority and powers. Yes, it wasn't a happy experience. Anyway, I haven't had a very big thought, but I've had quite a few thoughts about getting my act together. It's the beginning of the Toastmasters year. And oh, dear, I've resolved so many times to do succession planning properly. And it's crunch time. Um, I want to step down as treasurer next year. I think it'd be very good for the club if I step down as treasurer and I've got to start finding somebody now. Uh, Does Roberts have anything to say about succession planning?
0: Not a single word, except who has the right to speak next.
2: Oh. Right. So he's not going to help there. But yes, I'm, I need to summon up all my powers of persuasion and determination, clarity of purpose and find someone who can um, step up to the job. I know there are lots of people to who could step up to the job. It's persuading them that they want to and they've got the time and the commitment. There's my thought for the week. Go on, Pat. It's your turn now.
1: Well, my big idea is less an idea than it is an experience because I've been away for the last week and we're in the middle of a heat wave in Europe, as you know, and I've been in 40-degree heat for most of the time that I was there. And I had a fear of not being able to function because... Because of you know my my disease, the 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 system is works much much poorer in a really hot environment than than it does in a colder environment, you know. So so it's it's harder to it's harder to function. Um, But I found that I was pretty in not really in bad shape um, over the course of the of the weekend or the four or five five nights that I was away. I did have some help. My son was with me, and, and you know he me to get in and out of the car and, and that sort of stuff when I needed it but it's um yeah I was surprised that um, the fact that it wasn't as bad as I thought it was but 40 degree heat is pretty it's pretty hot um it's um but oddly I didn't think it would be just as bad as I expected um sorry I, I didn't think I thought it would be worse than I expected, Um, and and it wasn't. So I'm kind of pleased about that in one sense, and it's given me a sense that, well, yeah, I can probably take off to warmer climates and and, and live in them, or not live in them, but enjoy them more than I thought I would. Um, And it was great to get away and get the brain disengaged from all of the normal things that were going on. Um, And we went to, as you suggested, we should, and Paul went to Avignon, and we went to the Palais, Palais des Papes um, and took the bus tour around and it was just phenomenal. I'd love to go back and I'd love to spend some more time there. Um, so, and I took about 3000 photographs over the course of the five days, and um, which was doing a lot of holding the shutter down and taking repeat shots to get the best one. So all in all, great to clear the brain and get out of the normal routine. Um, but I've come back to a phenomenally full desk. So. That is going to be a busy couple of weeks catching up on all of that. So there's my big idea.
0: Well, I have to say, it's fantastic to hear that you can now go to warmer places than you thought, because the mm. prospect of you always having to go on your summer holidays to uh, Reykjavik, um, Alaska, <laughs> these other places, and uh, never being able, <laughs> able to go to anywhere warm. But that's great news, Pat. I'm, I'm thrilled.
1: So am I. There we go. So that's the end of part one of this week's Shilling Toastmasters podcast.
2: Welcome to part two of the Shilling Toastmasters podcast. This week, that's me, Philippa Gray, interviewing Lucinda Harmon. Lucinda, welcome to the Shilling Toastmasters podcast. It's great that you've been able to join us. Thank you for giving up your time. Now, There's exciting things happening in your life. I know you've got a book published, but before we talk about that, I'd love you to tell me how you got started in Toastmasters.
3: Uh, Thank you, Philippa. And I'm a proud member of uh, Shitting Speakers. Uh, I started my journey exactly today, four years ago. It was the 1st of August in 2018. So it really is an anniversary for me in the same time. And I think today is Toastmasters Day, which is, which is quite ironic at the end of the day. It, it's interesting. Um, I, you know, it's a story. I think it's the most told story in Toastmasters is what I talk about a lot is why I joined. Um, and I was going to a restaurant and I met a woman that said to me, "You know, what are your goals? What do you want to become? And I go an international speaker. And then she said to me, but um, are you speaking already? And I go, yeah, I am. And she said, but you get invited back. And that was a big question because the answer was a flat no. And she said, well, maybe you're not as good as you think you are. So why don't you come to a Toastmasters meeting? And through that, you will gain the necessary structure and confidence, everything you need in order to take you to the next stage. And she wasn't wrong because my TEDx lay pretty much a year and a bit later. So I think she was pretty, you know, it was not a year and a bit later, it was about 2020 in November. So it was two years and a bit later that I, I eventually got a TEDx.
2: Wow, I had no idea you'd move so quickly from joining Toastmasters to being a TEDx speaker. First time I heard you speak, you were practicing your speech and it was brilliant. That is really rapid progress. That's something for all of us to aim at. struck me, the friend who was talking to you in the restaurant, that was some quite brutal truth-telling there. You know, are you invited back? But obviously you, you took that,
3: absorbed it, and uh, ran with it. Absolutely. I mean, it wasn't a friend of mine. It was a complete stranger that walked up to a restaurant and had that conversation with me. And uh, both of us are pretty direct. Uh, I took no offense to it because it was the truth and uh, when I went and looked at it she knew I knew that she'd want me to achieve the one thing I did want to achieve and she was giving me an opportunity and I jumped at that opportunity I never saw it as a negative um, I, I like to be challenged in life so I take what people come the challenges they give me I take it more like an arm around my shoulder than as an attack so it, it was all good. Wow, that is such good advice. Let's move on to the book, which is published. Is it this week? It's already got out. Weekend it was out, um, yeah, I- and we're just waiting for the copies to arrive in South Africa, the hard copies, so I can have a launch event. Right, Shilling speakers was quick on the uptake and already sells in the bag from shillings. So I'm very grateful for, uh, but the official launch is probably still two weeks to go. Right.
2: Yeah, I've got my Kindle copy and I haven't got very far with it, but I think it's great. Uh, you say right up the front that you find writing difficult, but it is a really easy read and I love reading it. What
3: is it about writing that you think is difficult? I think it's, it goes back to my education, um, having English teachers that didn't like me. I was always controversial. Um, I, I I didn't do anything by the book. And if you read my book, you'll see I've never done anything by the book. I kind of, am always out the box, doing things differently, trying things, being very experiential in my approach, experimental, adventurous. It really has come down to, I've lost my train of thought. If i it back to you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, it is this so easy to do that. I was going to ask, waiting for the... Copies to arrive in South Africa. What are you going to do to uh, launch it? Are you going to have some big events?
3: I don't really think so. I think my market is more overseas than South Africa, funny enough, as I'm starting to work out. Um, I've got something planned for shilling, which will come up. I will be proposing something. It's pretty amazing, actually, what I'm going to propose to shilling. And that will probably be my online launch event. Um, in South Africa, it will be a small event, you know, those that want to be here uh, and, and celebrate that success. It, it certainly is a big celebration uh, to put a first book out there. It takes a lot of work. Sorry, now remember the question you were at. Uh, so, in my education time, my teachers kept on giving me a fail. Everything I did, even until I got to matric- matriculation certificate in South Africa. Uh, they still failed me in English. I got an F um, and many other kind of subjects carried me through. So I probably had always a feeling that whatever I wrote it was never it was never good enough. And uh, that kind of stayed with me. Uh, remember when I got published for Thrive um, Thrive itself, Thrive Global? I kind of always got people to edit my work. and please understand behind me as an editor with me. Uh, that, that, if you were to check how many red marks and corrections were in that book, uh, I think you'd fall off the chair right now. So uh, it, it, it also comes down to the team. And uh, I've got a, a, st- a strong team with me um, working through my work. Uh, there was a lot of hours in that, in the editing pro- process, the proofreading. It wasn't just put a book out there, write it, and it went up. There was a lot of adjustments to be made along the way.
2: Yes, I personally find it
3: fascinating
2: thinking about how authors work with editors. And yes, you make it sound quite essential to have an editor. Is that right?
3: I, Being me, I I definitely need an editor. Um, I also prefer self-publishing. I would never go with a publisher. And I know that could be a controversial subject on its own, but... I don't want to give that kind of percentage over to a publishing house uh, for all the accolades being first on the shelf, whatever. I want my work to find the right people and not price bracket the price out of the market, which is unreachable for most. So uh, you can see by the pricing, I put it, you know, specifically, I put it at the right price that anyone can grab hold of it. Um, and I kind of I like having a sense of control of my own work. I don't want to give over my book and somebody thinks that they can do what they want with it. I kind of wanted the reins in that book. And uh, I learned very quickly that uh, speaking to publishing houses, that I didn't want 10% of the profits. Um, Even if I got number one on some rack on some shelf, whatever it was I would rather have done it. I always go organic route with everything I do and everything I do in life. So it was I it kind of followed what I do best and what I tend to, my path I follow.
2: So are you going to launch it and let it find its own way or are you going to use your marketing skills to promote it?
3: And- yeah, I'm going to use my own skills. I yeah. think that is what I do best. Um, and I think... A lot of the corporate clients that I do work with will automatically buy it. And I think by the work that I do, the kind of following I have, I, I really believe the book is pitched at the right kind of market. I, due to a fair amount of questioning on LinkedIn, I kept on seeing a certain kind of person popping up that needed help. And that book is written for that person. It's it's specifically very niched. It's it there's an, there's literally an ideal client that I can tell you who they are. It it, it was specifically written um, for you know for a particular kind of person, um, and I think you know I I can give it over to marketing you know, but I think it it becomes part of your your kit as a speaker and as a trainer. It's just the one thing I still had to do. I had the TEDx, and now being an author, I've kind of I've kind of ticked the right boxes um, and it gives you a lot more um, expertise kind of value in the marketplace well i hadn't considered that um i am so jealous that you
2: have that sort of confidence that you know what you're doing with marketing ever since i stopped working in i.t i realized I mean that was seven years ago i realized recently Basically, I have been learning about marketing. It hasn't always been called marketing, but that is what I've been doing, learning to interact with the world rather than interact with IT customers and IT departments. I sort of understood when I stopped working that the world didn't quite function the way I was used to. But, yeah, I'm only just realising exactly what I need to know in order to achieve what I want from now on. And I think your book could be really helpful. started, say, from no knowledge of marketing, communicating, how to talk to the world in any terms other than this is the logical thing to do and this is how to do it.
3: And if I go about it, that's why it says the subtitle selling it like it is. I cut out all the waffle and rubbish and I get away from everything you've been told or people kind of conditioned you think it should be. And don't waste 33 years like I did learning all the hard lessons. I'm giving it to you straight now. Um, cut as much as you can through those years, through those learnings. And I'm kind of giving the gold. Uh, touching, charting waters where people mostly—it's not popular. It's not a popular kind of way a take that I that approach that I take, um, and I'm I'm really cutting through it. So I'm giving you the the absolute facts on how it works, how to go, the kind of kind of where the landmines are. Don't step on those landmines. Uh, maybe step around them and navigate. So hopefully, fast tracking a lot of people to get to, you know, find that success within the sales game uh, faster than, than actually bumping your head and it can take a lot of time. And you might be to spot in and give up. And I don't want people giving up. Uh, that's what sort I of right. You know, get up, show up, dress up. I mean, get up, dress up, show up and never give up.
2: That sounds amazing. Um, I'm really looking forward to getting back to it. I shall now be counting landmines. All right, and I've probably turn on a few already and see if I can spot them in the book. One last question about the book. I just love the title. Where did you get it from?
3: The title is from the last company that I've got employment from, from a day job perspective. And when I walked into the managing director's office, he had, number one, never met a hunter before. I'm a hunter. That is what I do. We go out, we go, we love the cold call, we engage, we get the first sales on the table, we navigate a brand new territory, take a new product to market, and then we withdraw. So they had never in their industry seen someone like me. And um, when he met me, he just knew that he wanted somehow me to fit into this company. That was completely not a fit for me. I mean, the, the, the worst ever I've been in and um his exact words were this is it i mean it's in the book you, I'm, I'm i'm literally going to employ you to go and shake the trees and it was a three-month stint and shake the trees and that's how he put it is you know people that shake the trees make it happen and they take action um there was um in south africa one of the branches was about to close and, and i was the last shot the last possible person that could put out there to make it all turn the entire game around for this company and for that branch. And I saved the branch in three months. Then I got another three months, it became six months, and then it became years. And I was like, no, can't keep shaking trees. This is getting crazy. I mean, there's no much, oh, no more trees. Um, so I really was, like, shake those trees and then what falls, collect it, bring it back and then go and get the low, the low, hanging fruits take them too, and by the second time you give it a smack you go and shake it you know make sure that you've capitalized it taken everything so what i did is i changed this company from they lost all their market um every single sale in the entire territory they were out they were not to be seen not even known and i reawakened the entire brand and I got sales on the table and yeah, so it, it, it literally was, that is what I kind of realized that I do best is I shake trees and it, it was just logical to use that as, as the title of the book because that's pretty much what I do in life. I'm always challenging everything and uh, making things happen, taking action. It's kind of a lot of who I am. Wow, thank you, Lucinda. One last
2: question on a different topic. You said you wanted to be a TEDx speaker and you've done that. You wanted to write a book. You've done that. So what
3: comes next? What comes next is uh, be a really strong brand internationally um, as a growth catalyst, which is my brand. Um, probably relocate out of South Africa is my next step. And the TED stage is the next big apple. That's, that's the big one. So to be sought after and chosen for that stage is, is kind of my next step. Uh, you know, there's always another step. I never sit down and say, okay, I've done enough. Uh, it's always striving for, for the big goals and, and making, making that magic and creating those extraordinary moments in life and literally not ever stopping or giving up until the very, very last breath that I take on the path before I... I pass over. So always making it happen, shake the trees.
2: Thank you, Lucinda. That's a great way to finish. So I've really enjoyed interviewing you. And that is the end of part two of this week's Shilling Toastmasters podcast.
1: Welcome to the third part of this week's Shilling Toastmasters podcast. In this part, we have our soapbox, and on the soapbox today is Philippa Gray. Philippa.
2: Thank you, Pat. Last week, you were on the soapbox. Now, I listened hard. I had a feeling at the time I didn't quite agree with you, I didn't quite understand some of your arguments. I did listen, I didn't take notes. So, this is not so much my response to it, but my thoughts uh, that were triggered by it. Now, you were talking about how easily people take offense these days. And I think there's probably another side to it, which you didn't discuss. Now, like most baby boomers, I was brought up on the mantra, sticks and stones may hurt, break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Now, my mother quoted this, over and over again when I was squabbling with my younger brothers. And of course we we were kids, we resort to name calling. And of course my parents couldn't stand it. It's pointless, it's something we needed to grow out of. And I just couldn't think of any argument against that. And after all, there's never really a good reason to pay any attention to little brothers or put any weight on their opinions because they're little brothers, aren't they? Um, so I learned to sort of shut up and I did my honest best to apply this in real life. But I found it so hard. I'd also been brought up as a good Catholic, my mother hoped. And I really felt this was... Definitely something wrong with me that I didn't like being called names, and the only technique I came up was grinning and bearing something, and I grew up in the seventies uh, again, baby boomers will remember lots of casual jokes, could be sexist, could be racist, just plain offensive, and if anybody uh, objected to them, it was just made it even funnier so I learned to bite my tongue because I just couldn't bear the consequences of doing anything else. And again, I thought I was inadequate and I really needed to get tougher. I never linked these experiences with free speech, but I've realized over the last couple of years, when as a U3A member, I've been looking at uh, philosophy, that free speech is a big deal. And I could never quite get a grasp on really what it was. And it wasn't until I listened hard to Pat and thought about what he said, and started to write, make some notes for this soapbox, I realised I was depriving myself of free speech. Or I was keeping quiet, because it felt like it was the best strategy. This was a real eye-opener. I thought, well, no wonder I get nervous when people think about free speech. Maybe I have some very valid ideas that we can only all have free speech in a society where we've all got confidence and we all treat each other as equals. Nobody is forming a gang to squash the people that they don't agree with. But let's roll the clocks forward to the current century. Those amazing things have happened. I mean, my brothers have grown up into people who are worth listening to. Thankfully, they've stopped calling me names and they are really worthwhile despite having me as an older sister. And when I think of some of the things, ways I treated them, I wince. Then, I love science, I love psychology. I was watching a documentary about 10, 15 years ago, and there's this really strong evidence that negative stereotypes are seriously damaging. A, some psychologists took a group of university math students, female students, showed them a video all about how women aren't very good at maths, And then demonstrated that it actually, when they gave them an exam, pushed their marks down. That was a total, again, an eye-opener. I wasn't brought up to understand just how damaging it is to call people names, to disparage them. It can be uh, acceptable. When I was a student, I was a math student. That's probably why the psychology experiment really struck home with me. It was a standing joke. Science students and especially math students weren't proper students. It was only art students who had the real university experience. If you were studying science, you know, you just third rate. We didn't mind because we knew we'd got jobs waiting for us at the end of it. Silly old art students. There are situations where it's okay to um, joke about stereotypes. But imagine if you're in a situation where every time you step out of the door, people remind you that you're different, constantly reminding you that you just aren't part of the gang. And this, put together with what the psychologists have found out, this can be really difficult. The upshot is, if you're talking to somebody and they take offence, you need to be really careful You don't know what other experiences they've had. Maybe, just like me, you've heard a probably quite funny sexist joke, but it's the umpteenth sexist joke you've heard in the day, and you are really fed up of them. I think it's really important that we are careful that if we don't mean to cause offence, we don't cause offence, or... We pay attention to what's offensive and we make sure we do it as little as possible. I'm not sure I'm making sense at this point, but that is my thought. It is really, diff- really easy to cause offence and really worthwhile not doing so. So thank you. I will step down from my soapbox and yeah, run out of things to say.
0: Well, that's the end of the podcast for this week. Thank you very much, Philippa, and thank you very much for listening to us. We look forward to you subscribing to the podcast, Shilling Toastmasters podcast. All the best until the next episode from Paula Mani. And Pat And
2: Philippa Gray. That's it for today from the Shilling Toastmasters podcast.
0: Thank you for listening. Please subscribe and share with your friends.